Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. About 10 ways. About 10 ways to love your brain. You know, we, we're all in the age of over 65, which is when Alzheimer's uh, catches up with, with people. From 65 on up, the uh, number of people who have Alzheimer's is great. And so they talk about the lifestyle habits that you should adopt in order to decrease the likelihood of Alzheimer's. And actually, none of them are unfamiliar to you because we talk about most of the lifestyle changes all every meeting. First one, of course, is to have a regular exercise pattern that, that uh, engages you uh, no less than uh, 150 minutes a week, which we talk about all the time anyway. The next is reading. I don't know how many of you read a lot, but uh, reading books and taking courses is uh, recommended as a good way to uh, keep your mind uh, going. Then the third thing they list is uh, stop smoking uh, if you smoke. Most of us don't smoke anyway, but it's still interesting that 5% of the American population still smokes. So that's uh, something that uh, they talk about incessantly. And then keep your blood pressure uh, and your blood sugar under control. Uh, those two things contribute significantly towards the development of uh, uh, Alzheimer's. And then uh, if you can't avoid, uh, uh, I guess this is the uh, fifth one, avoid uh, uh, head injuries. Of course, that's maybe easier said than done uh, because uh, I guess one of the things you can do is help your children and grandchildren to stay away from football. Uh, but they talk about wearing a seatbelt, wearing a helmet, and uh, wearing a help when you're riding a bike and all that stuff to prevent falls. And of course, we know that falls are the uh, old, old men and women's worst enemy because they contribute significantly to old age mortality. And then, of course, uh, uh, number six would be uh, have a healthy diet, rich in vegetables and fruits, and low in fat, you know, something that uh, Dallas talked about incessantly. Uh, and that's something we've talked about almost every meeting. And then uh, uh, recommending getting seven to nine hours of sleep every night, which is something we've talked about as well. That's, that's uh, easy to say, it's not, not as easy to do. How many of you get seven to nine hours of sleep a night? I do. That's two. Two? Only two? Wow. Uh, that's surprising. But anyway, uh, Darrell, you get seven. Seven to seven nine, huh? Good. Okay. Yes, sir. So three, out of, three out of us. I, uh, I get seven to nine hours of sleep, but they're not consecutive hours. That's the problem for me. It's like... Well, we were going to talk about consecutive. They don't say consecutive. Okay, just well, seven to nine hours a night. You tell me about consecutive. I might sleep three hours, wake up, 
go back, sleep another four hours, wake up, go back. Yeah, that's good. That's, 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 that's good. good. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Then uh, uh, number uh, nine would be uh, stay socially engaged. That is, uh, participate with your community, with churches, group meetings, those kind of things. And, and a, a number of you sing. And of course, they recommend singing in the... And, and those who don't sing uh, musicians, uh, and they recommend that as a, uh, a very good way of, of loving your brain. And then finally, they talk about something that we we have mentioned, talk about playing chess and bridge and uh, doing puzzles and those kinds of things. And uh, uh, so those are, those are some of the uh, recommendations they make that uh, uh, are novel to us, but anyway, good to remind us of the practices that we should be um, participating in as we as we age, as we try to avoid uh, uh, getting what uh, close to thirty percent of the older population gets, and that is Alzheimer's. Any other comments or questions about those ten ways to show love to your brain and uh, Minimize the likelihood of Alzheimer's. Dr. Callender? Yes. I I um believe those things are good. And my thing is this year I've started using my sleep apnea machine every night. And I'm getting seven to to um nine hours of sleep. And if I get less than that, if I get six or five, I still feel better than I used to when I when I got 12 because the sleep apnea makes me feel better, period. Gives me more energy. Um, I, I feel so much better this year because of that. I had been trying to use the machine and not using it well, but using it sometime, but I, I dedicated myself this year to using it every night and I can tell the difference. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thanks for sharing. Any other comments? I also use the CPAP uh, every night and uh, I even use it if I take a nap. Uh, it definitely uh, for some reason it, it clears my my sinuses. <laughs> You know, by the end, by the morning, you know, um, I'm, I'm clearer. And as John was suggesting, if I have to wake up, uh, you know, before my seven or eight hours, um, it, it keeps track of the amount of time that I'm sleeping. It also adds my nap time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Doctor, Any other comments? If not, uh... yeah, I have a comment. Uh, you know, in my situation, I don't have uh, any signs of uh, sleep apnea, and I don't use a CPAP machine. However, uh, I have a problem with stuffy nose. My nose is always stuffy. But it doesn't keep you from sleeping, you know? No, but it, it's it's a breathing thing where I don't get nice, fresh breath. Hmm. 
Betty, are you, are you, can you talk yet, Betty? Still? <laughs> I have a question. This is Sylvia. Good morning, everyone. I'm Goodbye. driving up to my mom's. Um, what are the signs uh, of sleep apnea that you, you, you might need a machine? What is your question? What are the signs that you may need a, a sleep apnea machine? If you snore. If you Just snore. snoring in general? If your partner, if your partner tells you that you snore, that's a, a sign that you may need sleep apnea. Now there are many other, other signs, but that probably is the commonest. Um, and also if you and, uh, also if you if you wake up and you're tired after sleeping, that uh -huh. uh, is also a suggestion that you may so, need. So what do you do? T talk to your doctor and say you, you go and get a snore. sleep test. You talk to your doctor and you set up a sleep test, and they they will they will follow you as you sleep and watch your oxygen level. And if oh. your oxygen level is low, that means that you have sleep apnea, and CPAP would help you. I see. Thank you. It's very important because sleep apnea is thought to be a cause of hypertension and increased uh, death rates, in particularly in African American. So uh, uh, if you have sleep apnea, treating it by CPAP uh, will lengthen your life. And also, as, as, as mentioned here, make you feel stronger and better and uh, uh, give you more energy and, and also lengthen your life. So. One other thing to consider is that on, uh, at least on my machine, there's a, a water tray. I can put the still water in there and it humidifies the air that I'm breathing. That might be something to help John Tatum. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Okay, any other comment? If, oh, yeah, John. Any other comment? If not, uh, we'll start the articles. Where are you recording? Any other comments? Okay, next. Uh, it's interesting. These are what they consider the most exciting medical research breakthroughs, and they talk about three items actually that are really critical. First is the uh, advancement in mRNA technology and applying this, uh, uh, of course, brought us the. Uh, uh, vaccine, but uh, many are not aware of the fact that uh, uh, this technology is now being used to treat tumors. And uh, of course, it's well known that the ultra processed foods are involved in so many uh, diseases, including the development of depression. <clears throat> and then finally, the application of the, of the AI to paralysis to stroke and spinal cord injury. <clears throat> and so these are considered by the, these, these five major research breakthroughs are considered as items for discussion. Then the mRNA application to COVID uh, is something we've been talking about for the last three years. And uh, there's little question that that has been a uh, marked uh, contribution. The uh, second part of it, though, is less well known, and that is the fact that these vaccines are used for immunochemotherapy for cancer. 
And that is, uh, as a consequence, you will see some more articles later on that point to the fact that the um, mortality rate for cancer is decreasing. And one of the reasons is related to uh, the, the new type of chemotherapy as well as the uh, immunotherapy that has developed. And these cancer fighting agents are making a big difference. Uh, so that it may well be that the best is yet to come, but it's still uh, already uh, making a difference in the mortality rate of cancers. However, cancer is still killing and uh, still the number two cause of death in the world. Then, of course, the ultra-processed foods effect on mental health and health in general. Uh, has been talked about ad nauseum for the last uh, few years. And it's very little question that the uh, impact of ultra-processed foods has been uh, very negative as it affects all aspects of health, mental health as well as physical health. And then uh, finally, uh, the area that we have been least successful at is dealing with the spinal cord and having people paralyzed because of spinal cord injury. And so uh, groundbreaking research has resulted with AI enabling a man with spinal cord injury able to walk again, which is <clears throat> a little short of miraculous because we've been totally unable to do anything like that. It's interesting that Marco himself has quadriplegia as a result of a biking accident. And so uh, having that development is, is a major breakthrough. Uh, of course, that's been very limited. We're talking about one or two or three patients. Uh, and then, of course, the neurostimulation to age stroke recovery. Uh, people who have, uh, of course, one of the major problems is to have people who have strokes to uh, go to the hospital right away and have the clots removed or, uh, uh, and, and have them recover. But now we have deep brain stimulation as well to affect, uh, to allow for the re resolution of some uh, hemiparesis that results from stroke. So uh, these are uh, documented uh, proof that uh, these therapies uh, are making a difference. And uh, where we will go from here remains to be seen, but those are uh, five uh, major research breakthroughs of 2023. Any comments on uh, those five breakthroughs, which are remarkable? Okay, uh, this is a, a, a negative article in the sense that it's a shift in colorectal cancer to advanced stages and occurring at younger ages and diagnosis. Uh, people with advanced stage cancer increased from 50% to 60%, uh, which is 
very bad because that means that by the time you make the diagnosis, it's 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 difficult to treat and it's likely to result in the death of patients. Even though we've decreased the age at which you need to get colonoscopy and other things like that to 45, yet uh, colorectal cancer uh, advanced is being diagnosed in younger patients. And so the question is why? And uh, some of it may be related again to uh, the diet. And some may be related to people who are not uh, getting colonoscopy. But uh, more and more, it appears related to our diet. The other question is, what else can you do to prevent uh, this from occurring in younger patients? And uh, it is attractive to say that uh, lifestyle changes such as diet changes may go a long way to, to producing a remedy to this. We've talked about the merits of screening, but this is a, a shot, a negative shot for screening because instead of things getting better, things are getting worse. Now, it is true that we have better treatments for cancer once it's diagnosed, but an ounce of prevention is what most of us are more interested in. Any other comments about uh, this uh, disturbing finding? Dr. Calendar, do you think maybe they should have screening more frequent than, well, my father got colon cancer at at um ninety, and um, he was treated. And he had to have a colon. He had to have uh, his colon removed. He had a ostomy bag, and he did not die of colon cancer. He was free of cancer. In fact, when he before he died, they were gonna they wanted to attach him back, but he didn't want to he didn't want to do that. But uh, what I'm saying is maybe maybe five years or 10 years is too long. Maybe they should test people two years. My brothers and I have to get tested every five years because of our father. But before that, the first couple of years after he died, they had us testing every two years. So maybe they have to, instead of saying 10 years or five years, maybe they should go to two years to test people. Well, there's, I guess they have to see what the evidence suggests. I think it, it may well be the case for people who have family histories of cancer, uh, but it's food for thought. Uh, it's food for thought. Any other comments or thoughts? Down, what do you think the role of ultra-processed foods plays in this? 
huge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Dr. Calendar, um, what are the solutions of the end-stage colorectal cancer? Uh, one of them, well, like Mary Ellen said, her father had her colon removed. That's, I guess that's one solution. Um, are there, well, surgery, I mean, is there anything else other than removing the colon? Well, it depends when you find it. And uh, uh, because rectal cancer is often treated by chemotherapy and radiation, uh, whereas the colon cancers are more suitable. Uh, but they they also treated by chemotherapy as well. But it's, uh, uh, it, it all depends on the stage in which the cancer is identified. But I think when you have a situation like this where you don't have an answer, you have to look at new ways of uh, treating. But I think uh, Daryl's uh, answer says a lot in terms of uh, looking at the diet and the also processed foods and other things. And, and then, of course, as uh, you mentioned, uh, whether there is merit it's 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 it, it, whether there is merit to increasing the screening uh, that that has to be looked at as well. I think everything needs to be looked at since we are going backwards rather than forwards. However, the uh, treatment for rectal cancer with uh, uh, chemotherapy and radiation has been very effective. <clears throat> <laughs> which is a little different from the colon colonic cancer, which is above the rectum. Okay. Well, let's go to the next one. Well, this is an interesting article because it's, it says that we, we worry about obesity and we got all this medication, surgery and everything else. And uh, the last thing we look at is the brain when that may be the first thing we should look at. Uh -huh. uh, and this article talks about uh, this 32-year-old person who just couldn't stop eating. And that is often the case with people with obesity. They love food and they just eat and eat and eat and eat. And uh, uh, they have found uh, medications that affect the brain can be helpful in terms of dealing with the uh, way in which the people who weigh five, six, seven, eight, and 900 pounds just can't stop eating. Now we agree that some people, uh, in spite of the fact that they don't eat very much, still gain weight. But they, they are talking about the people who fit in the category, who just eat and eat and eat, never stop eating. And they talk about this GLP-1 agonist drugs that they give that uh, uh, may curb the appetite, which may uh, go a long way to dealing with this. And uh, the thought is that it's a brain problem, not so much a, a hormonal problem. 
and uh, the, the, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating, although nowadays bariatric surgery has been used for many people. Because what they're calling this is a food addiction. That's essentially what they're calling it. Um, just like you have a cocaine addiction and the other addictions. So they think that uh, dealing directly with the brain itself with the dopamine um, hypothesis maybe the way it works, but uh, so far, we, ha we aren't having a lot of uh, uh, evidence, although there is a lot, a lot of schools of thought that have identified the leptin and other compounds in the, in the GI tract uh, uh, impact the brain and result in uh, obesity. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see as uh, as the year goes on, as they attack the brain the same way they're attacking the GI tract, whether this will result in reduction in the obesity in those people who are addicted to food. Dr. Callender, that sounds like a great solution to work on the brain because I think those people who get well, they say those people who get bariatric surgery uh, risk uh, gaining the weight back uh, if they, you know, if they're not careful. And then I know some people who got their mouth wired shut, almost shut, just open enough to get a straw in, and so once they lose all the weight, they have a chance of gaining the weight back as well. So I think we got some when we're talking about dealing with the uh, brain. Any other comments about this? Uh, yeah, we just scrolled past uh, a part that was talking about, go back a little bit. They were talking about people, they had a control group, people, it's right there, people eating ultra-processed food and no processed food. And the people ate the same thing. The people on processed food gained weight. The people on no processed foods lost weight. Uh -huh. Mark, you had a comment? Yes. Um, I, just in my very casual observation, um, yeah, I certainly agree with this article. I, I see another aspect is that I, I see people using food as a source of comfort. Um, you know, when they've had some psychological trauma in their life, you know, whether childhood or adulthood, you know, some, something kind of triggered that lifelong uh, uh, yearning for, you know, for food as, as a source of comfort. And uh, then I've seen those who use, who use food as um, they have they have a scarcity mentality. You know, they may have had like food insecurity growing up or some sort of thing. So so anytime they see food now, they, they uh, psychologically just eat as much as they can because they have this uh, gnawing notion that, you know, they don't know when their next meal is going to come from. So it's kind of like they they just kind of subconsciously stock up. Um, so I, and that, that's just my casual observation of, of how I see 
people have treated food. But but my question to you, Dr. Callender, is what what do you think about uh, hypnosis as a form of solution for those who may be suffering psychologically with with uh, addiction and such? I think there's merit to that. Yeah, I think there's a role for hypnosis, which fits into the brain uh, hypothesis. Any other comment on this uh, approach to obesity? We've got all kinds of approaches now. Dr. Callender? Yes. I think I, I agree with this article. I, I agree because when I was addicted to nicotine, I could get it out of my bloodstream, but I never was able to stop until I could get it out of my mind. Once it was out of my mind, then I was able to uh, be free. But how did you get it out of your mind? Well, I used that Wellbutrin. The Wellbutrin got it out of my mind. It took it out of out of my system completely. Um, the nicotine patch, all that did was substitute the cigarette for the nicotine patch. Uh, that didn't work. When I would abstain, that would be fine for a while. But if I saw somebody on TV smoking. <laughs> it made me want to smoke. So until I got it out of my head, that was the key. And it's been 13 years since then. So that's, I think that's a good approach. That's what they need to do. They need to get it out of people's, the addiction has, has to start with getting it out of your brain. Any other comments? Interesting article that's very provocative. And uh, uh, okay, let's go to the next one. This is the one that we mentioned before that uh, uh, when you look back over over the last two decades, identified that the cancer death rate has dropped by 33%. It's very significant. And in the last two years, they've approved 14 new anti-cancer therapeutics. And uh, these will more than likely uh, decrease the cancer death rate even more. So uh, of course, uh, the biggest uh, causes of death in cancer are the lung cancer and breast cancer. And uh, even though you've had these large declines, you still have so many young black women who are dying from breast cancer. And uh, it's very distressing. Uh, now we have immunotherapy, which we didn't have before. And we have uh, inhibition cancer therapies that we didn't have before. And so uh, these are all resulting in decreased uh, cancer mortality rates. Uh, but uh, we still are having 
cancer is the top, top in the top five always, and usually number two. So yeah, we're making progress, uh, but uh, and as you go old, it's one of the diseases that uh, becomes commoner as your immune system weakens cancer, the incidence of cancer increases. And that may be why these immunotherapies are becoming more effective. What is interesting is that because of this, even though you're spending billions of dollars for research into uh, cancer, there's a need for even more, especially with the poor results of pancreas cancer, where we've really not made any, any progress with pancreatic cancer. You can see that 3.5 million billion to NIH and 2.6 billion. So we're talking about spending six to $7 billion and uh, suggesting that we need more. And uh, we talk about spending money for defense, spending money for um, defensive medicine and uh, we would be much better off if we spent a lot of money on addressing uh, even more those issues that are causing cancers like the so-called also processed foods and other things like that, which seem to be uh, perhaps the root cause of the cancers. Well, I say that because we really don't know what is the cause of cancer. We know what contributes to it, but don't really understand all the ways in which pancreatic cancer and brain cancers and other things occur. I have a question, Dr. Callender. Um, one word that I saw in the last article and one word in this article, uh, the previous one was agonist. Can you help me with that? What What is an agonist? Agonist is something that supports something. An antagonist is something that goes against it. So an agonist is something that is supports the growth of something. An antagonist is something that is uh, goes against the growth of something. All right. Yeah, I, uh, you just answered it for me. Uh, I was thinking of antagonists. So it's like the opposite of the antagonist. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. And... Uh, the glioblastoma. That's a that's one of that's one of the brain tumors that uh, uh, and and brain cancer is another area that we don't do very well in. Pancreatic cancer and brain cancer both uh, have uh, very poor five-year survival rates. And once you make that diagnosis of pancreatic or um, glioblastoma, brain cancer then uh, uh, death is 
likely to occur within five years, regardless of what we do so far. So these are areas that we have made little to no progress in. So we, we need to really uh, try to try to really identify if the ultra processed foods really are are the problem and and, and really uh, move aggressively toward it because an ounce of prevention is certainly worth a pound of cure. All the billions of dollars we're spending, and still people are dying from cancer right and left. Of course, one of the greatest tragedies I think of all is. To, see how nicotine is worldwide uh, such a pathogen, but yet uh, we still make nicotine. <laughs> you know, it's uh, ironic that we make poisons that kill, kill each other, but don't regulate uh, that. Anyway, any other thoughts about uh, ways in which we should try to overcome this uh, dreadful disease? Not the calendar. Yes. Um, they have a they have a drug for alcohol. If somebody is addicted to alcohol, they have a medicine that they can take that makes them get sick if they eat alcohol, if they drink alcohol called an abuse. Do they still use that medication? Uh, not very much, but they still use it. Yeah, not too much. I guess the problem is, is that who would want to take a medicine? <laughs> that's the problem. Right. Yeah, that's the biggest they problem. Need get, they need to get something because processed food tastes so good. <laughs> it it tastes so good, and so many things that are good for you don't taste good. <laughs> maybe said, they can maybe they can find a medicine that if we eat processed food, we won't feel good or we'll get sick. Well, I think one thing is clear. Uh, we're not doing enough right now. So any thoughts that you may have certainly uh, may be fruitful. Darrell, you got any thoughts on this subject? Uh, yeah, just the usual ones, um, including, you know, we're talking about cancer rates with black women. And um, a lot of that has to do with uterine cancer and they're finding links. Um, let's see, Boston University, I just uh, put up a search for this, where to go. I lost it, but they just did, they do very few large, large scale studies on black women. And uh, Boston University just did a stu study where they say there's a very definite link between hair relaxers and uterine cancer. And of course, uh, black women are the main users of hair relaxers. And it's really kind of unfortunate because, uh, you know, we do it, try to 
trying to adhere to a European standard of beauty, which causes <laughs> us a lot of health problems. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my call constantly for black women, stop straightening your hair. There's nothing wrong with um, nappy hair, having naps in your kitchen, all of those things that your parents, your, that your mother and your grandmother told you were bad, they lied. Stop yeah. listening. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, this is, um, Betty, did you have a comment? Oh, no, okay. Uh, Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on my, I'm on my cell phone, but I need to turn something down. The computer. Okay. But I just, I don't know what to say. I don't see the sound on here. Wait a minute. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I had wanted to comment about the um, straightening that Daryl was talking about. The um, uh, I've been using it for so long. I haven't, fortunately, haven't had any problems with it. Um, and I guess I started using it to maybe uh, make sure I look better, or I thought that was a reason. But at this point in time, I use I can't get a comb through my hair unless I use it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's uh, not necessarily just because I'm trying to look like the Europeans is because I'm trying to comb my hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, guess what? Black hair isn't meant to be combed. <laughs> well, you know, we, we do a lot as, as seniors, as grandparents, grand uncles, grand aunts, you know, if we can let go a lot of these things and go back to natural, then our children are, and our grandchildren will follow us. They say, well, if grandmama can do it, uh, and she's been perming her hair for the last 60 years, if she can do it, I can do it. We need to make a change. <laughs> um, it's called I save the good, babies. But... Save the babies from, you know, don't make them go through what, what we went through. <laughs> well, Daryl, this generation already has done it without us doing it. Um, that is the style, the natural look. If, even if when you look on TV, the curly look and all of that. Um, our generation had to do it, and as you always were talking about history, the only way that a Black woman could get a job was to straighten her hair. The moment, like in the 70s, when I did have an afro, it was cute for a young adult but it wasn't in the trend of style. And I remember teaching in the 80s and 90s when we told black women they could not, and they had laws in certain institutions that you could not wear braids. Now braids are acceptable. And even in Africa, that is the way that women 
did. They would take time to braid their hair. And even if you look in the Bible, you're talking about braiding hair. So as far as a woman's beauty and adorning her hair, that has always been the thing. Um, but as far as straight hair, now I just got over the point that I could let my gray hair grow out. Next point, I know I'm brainwashed terribly. I'm just used to, and my comfort level is to have straight hair, but I'm edging and itching toward getting, wearing my hair natural, but it's for a woman, it's still work. So the consequently, that's why a lot of women, they get tired of that work. And you even look in Africa, they just shave it off. So that's all I have to say <laughs> about that. Well, okay. Uh, back to Africa, they get a lot of American TV. And so a lot of their beauty standards are according to what they look at African-Americans on TV. And so the way Africans do now is not how they did their hair 100 years ago. And when you talk about we're making very little progress, yeah, we're making a, a, a micro amount of progress in how young women are treating their hair. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is when I'm downtown Chicago, I can just uh, sit out a, a restaurant window and watch people pass. In Chicago, uh, probably the women that walk past the window where I'm looking, uh, they're about 40% black. And most of them are uh, about 70% under 40 years old. And I walk past and see how many uh, don't torture their hair. Uh, I see all kind of weaves, I see hair pieces, and that's prevalent <laughs> among uh, under 40. Uh, and yeah, I see some braids, I see, uh, uh, I see some cornrows, but uh, for the most part, I see people not accepting their natural hair and just torturing their hair with, a, with just a variety of, of means uh, where, they, where they're not embracing their natural hair. As opposed to when I look at uh, white women passing that same window, then you got about high 90% of them embracing their natural hair. The thing that they do uh, is that you got about 90% of, of, of white women blow drying their hair because without the blow dryer, that stuff would be have no body and it'd be flat and stringy. Okay. okay. I have a comment. Um, you know, what, what's been mentioned before a lot is the, the media, the, the visual effect of what you see on, on the television and in the movies. Um, and I, I think you've seen it more and more lately, uh, the, the style of, of black hair that is more natural. And... Uh, I think that has a, a huge role in what's acceptable. You know, as you see more that uh, the, the the puffy, natural African look uh, on on TV and movies, then you know it'll get more accepted in the in the African, at least in the African American community. Yeah, well, a, a lot of times they th those um, styles they may not be uh, using hair straighteners, but they are putting some sort of chemicals in their hair. It's not just puffy and and 
not if you just let your hair don't do anything to it it's not going to look like it looks when you see them on television true okay let's go to the next one uh, this is an article that's very similar to one we had last week but it shows that they've changed the increased the uh, number of people who need to be screened from 50 to 80 years with the 20 year or greater pack year history. Uh, who now can be, get the uh, uh, lung scan. Uh, of course, 20 pack year history is a long history, but it, it's the history that is associated with uh, lung cancer. And uh, uh, this is a, thought to be an important screening development to uh, get more people to get a diagnosis, earlier diagnosis of lung, lung cancer, since that's one of the commonest uh, cancer-related deaths in this country. It's especially when you see it's more deaths than all the others combined. So, so it's, and, and, but it's, once again, it's interesting. Yeah, you got a disease that is, uh, almost uh, nearly exclusively caused by a poison that we we smoke you know and uh, and and not only those who smoke but those who live with those who smoke <laughs> so uh, so it, it goes to show we we do cultivate habits that are lethal and uh, Nicotine is one, alcohol is another. Ultra-processed foods apparently are an additional one. Dr. What does that mean, pack years? It means that you smoke 20 packs, 20 packs a day. Twenty packs a year. Yeah, twenty packs a year. That's that that that's really not a, not a lot of cigarettes to smoke twenty packs a year. That is, well, if you take it up to twenty four, that would be uh, two packs a month, and you break it down, you oversmoke. I used to smoke a pack a day. Right. One pack a day? That's 30 I packs a month. One pack a day. And I know people that used to smoke two and three packs a day. So 20 packs a year would be, uh, yeah, about a little less than 1.5 years, about two packs a month. It's interesting how that all started. And as, as somebody mentioned, in, in the, the social media we had was TV and mm -hmm. movies. And uh, I mean, they bombarded our community with those cigarettes, smoking westerns. Every movie, somebody was smoking a cigarette. 
So it became a, a cool. habit that uh, everybody seemed to adopt. And it's turned out to be a lethal habit. Mm -hmm. I remember reading the uh, Ian Fleming novels. I used to think it was so cool. As soon as I was able to get cigarettes, I was going to smoke because they made it so yeah, um, yeah, yeah. appealing. You know? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Almost like you, you had to smoke. Yeah. If you didn't, you uh, something's wrong with you. Really made you cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, there's a pack of cigarettes called cool. <laughs> this is an interesting article. I just put it here to this is not something that is available yet, but it's uh, something that down the road will uh replace perhaps the pancreas transplant and where they put this device under your skin and and it uh, it has insulin. It releases insulin upon demand, and uh, so uh, the whole situation is regulated. Actually, they have something like this already. That uh, I know one of my friends is a diabetic, and he he has he has uh, a device much like that uh, that. Uh, does all the work for him. So you, so for diabe diabetics, type one diabetics, at least, uh, the, uh, the cure is on the way. And of course, there's no disease that's, uh, well, cancer is destructive, but second to cancer, diabetes is destructive if it's not under control. Or when it's controlled, it's okay. Type one, especially type two as well. If it's, if it's controlled, you do okay. But if it's not controlled, it is uh, just like cancer. Dr. Counter, where does the uh, insulin come from? Pancreas. No, no, no. The the, the insulin in, in the device. It's in the device. Where uh, is it enough in that device yeah. to last? Yeah. And then that, then, then, then then it can be replaced. Got to go get a refill. Yeah. But use what every probably replace it every six months or so, something like that. Interesting. But uh, but they do have a device now that's very similar to this that uh, I know one of my colleagues who has it and uh, keeps his blood sugar under control. And that is what uh, uh, causes the complications, uh, the uh, high glucose levels. Mark Tatum has his hand up. Yeah, Mark. Just on this uh, slight tangent, just looking at the technology of doing implants for, for treatment, uh, I'm remiss that I came in a little bit late. I, I wanted to see what, at the beginning of this Zoom call, you all were talking about CPAP machines. Um, and, you know, wanted to kind of provide some of my experience there. But the connection here is that I, I saw recently that they are having another treatment for sleep apnea is an implant. I don't know 
if you guys have ever seen or heard that, but they're supposed to be some type of uh, implant that you can put in your chest that can inspire. Yeah, that can trigger, you yeah. know, something trigger the you know the right muscles and, and such, you know, to try to uh, get your your breathing, you know, back regulated and such. But this, so this is just to talk about the the technology, the health technology of, of doing implants to to do stuff. I, when I saw that, I I don't know if you know for the back to the sleep apnea part. I don't know if I trusted it. It, it seemed too new, but I'm just kind of just commenting on on the technology of it all. It seems very uh, innovative, I guess. Yeah, and I think we, maybe next week we'll talk about Inspire because that's a relatively new uh, thing that is implantable as well. But uh, this this uh, implantable device is now uh, a modification of it is available uh, already, uh, 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 and the uh, and it works very much like this, except that. Uh, uh, except that it, it uh, I'm not sure how often they replace the device, but they do have a device that's similar to this already for type one diabetics. And that's the future that uh, they will put these implantable devices in, and, uh, which works even better than an insulin pump, so. So this, this, so the, the cures for diabetes is, uh, or effective treatment of diabetes is, right around the corner. Just like we talked about the uh, uh, treatment for sickle cell disease, with the uh, genetic uh, gen genetic. Uh, uh, Genetic treatment for sickle cell disease. Remember, we talked about last week that 22 out of the 22, when the gene in intervention took place, 21 of the 22 uh, had no more than one uh, crisis a year when they were used to have one crisis every month. So uh, we're making progress uh, in terms of identifying ways in which artificial intelligence can help develop uh, tools that uh, treating many diseases. Any other comments about it? Thank you very much, Mark, for sharing that information with us. It, uh, it's very important to be aware of what's coming down the pike. However, this is old news. Uh, COVID still killing a thousand Americans per week and hospitalizations on the rise. And people are not getting the boosters that they're supposed to be getting. I think the last study showed that about 20% of the people who could get COVID shots have gotten them. And the uh, this is uh, the end of the first month, January, February are likely to be more lethal. So anybody on this this call who's not gotten their RSV and COVID and flu shot, uh, now's the time to get it.
57% of residents said they're not going to get it. The variant is 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 not as problematic if you have the booster. But if you don't have the booster, and the, and the symptoms to me are essentially the same. The only difference is you you have more of a sore throat with this than the other one, but uh, the symptoms essentially are the same. And uh, what happens is that now we have three vaccines which we never had before. But the problem is that people aren't taking the vaccines and that's a concern. The preventive measures are still the same. Wearing masks, ventilating rooms and uh, staying home if you're sick. Uh, and then the symptoms, as I say, are still essentially the same. Except more often you have sore throat. But I, I'm, I'm happy that most of our audience has already gotten their uh, revaccinations. Go to the next one. If, if. Uh, this is this the last one. But this is an interesting one in that. Uh, oh, several more. Okay, but this is one of the. It's almost ten thirty. I thought we <laughs> thought we'd finish early since we only had thirteen. But uh, this is a situation where they did some tests and they found that our treatment for the mental health illness and the effort to relieve alleviate psychological suffering. Uh, with mindfulness and other such techniques. Uh, and they thought that uh, this new behavioral therapy would make a difference. And in point of fact, when they use it on the teenagers, while it may have worked on some of the adults, it was ineffective. And as a matter of fact, they found that in teenagers, it made it even worse. So uh, one size didn't always fit all. And some things that work for older people don't always work for teenagers. And uh, this is just an example of one situation in which the DBT, which is the therapy they recommended, uh, was ineffective. So I guess the moral of the story, we, we have to evaluate all of our treatments to make sure that because they work on one group, does not mean they will work in all groups. And uh, just points again that teenagers are different from adults, which are different from infants. I think the one of the biggest hazards in field of mental health is the stigma of mental health. And I think efforts to eliminate, uh, minimize the stigma will go a long way to helping us deal with one of the commonest ailments that we have, which is mental health ailments. Anxiety, depression, etc.
Dr. One of the questions that you might have is how many of our teenagers actually uh, go in for mental health treatments? It's increasing uh, nowadays. It really is increasing. I don't know if it's because of COVID, pre-COVID. or Well, COVID certainly has increased the incidence of anxiety and depression. My question, Dr. Callender, is uh, these mental illnesses, are they generally hard to diagnose and you really need a professional to diagnose these things? Well, uh, as you may know, uh, they have screens now that are able to pick up depression and anxiety, uh, which uh, they use more than ever before. And they are they're able to screen use screening tests, which they recommend now for people uh, under 60. Uh, and so the diagnosis is certainly made more easily. Uh, also, people are more willing to, to take mental treatment, whereas in the past, there was a stigma if, and people were, would not go to psychiatrists. So more people are going to psychiatrists now, or psychologists. I um uh, I asked that question because uh, uh, I have a relative that has something wrong upstairs, and I can't put my finger on. It. Well, um. Uh, one thing is if uh, they have a problem and they don't get it treated, it 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 can worsen. So, um, recommending that they can get help is is worthwhile. Okay, okay, uh, and you have a happy new year, Carol. We'll miss you, and see you next year. Probiotics is a, is a subject that uh, we've talked about, and uh, they've, they, you can see it, $32 billion is, is, is what people spend on probiotics. <laughs> and remember, this is what is defined as the good bacteria that you put in your GI tract to kill off the bad bacteria. And there have been many studies over time uh, to eliminate diarrhea as a consequence of these probiotics. Uh, the question is, do they work? And uh, most of the studies indicate that they are of some benefit. Uh, the extent to which they are benefit and whether uh, you should take them or not still remains to be seen, but there are studies that suggest that they are of benefit. Um, Pepto-Bismol comes to my mind for diarrhea. Which is not a probiotic. Okay, that's what my question is. Thank you. That's not a probiotic. Probiotics are really uh, bacteria, actually. Good bacteria. That are supposed to kill off the bad bacteria. That's the, that's the whole concept of it. Uh, but... Uh, 
how good they are and uh, the, the data suggests that they are a benefit. But, uh, uh, and we do know that uh, fecal transplants do work, which is a ex exaggerated uh, a microbiome uh, situation where you take the a bad, the good bacteria from somebody and give it to somebody who doesn't have these ba good bacteria and they kill off the bad bacteria. That's what a fecal transplant is all about. Mm. Now this is important because this is a case in which they forced these people to retire at the age of 75. And the uh, EEOC uh, said that it was against the law. And so they had to pay these people $7 million because they violated the law. So it's against the law to force anybody to retire, although they are professionals which this is done routinely. Pilots and uh, in the field of math, I think they force you to retire at 70 or 75. So uh, that is age discrimination. And uh, these people took it to court and they won. Wow. And now that they got $7 million, they don't need to go back to work. <laughs> Well, that's the total. I mean, I don't, but I guess they, they, uh, that was the total, not, not, uh, they weren't getting $7.5 million per person. Do you know how many doctors were involved in this? Huh? How many doctors were involved? I forgot they have at the top of the article. Uh, the number of them. Uh, back when, uh, back when I started working at Allstate uh, in management, and this was uh, in the seventies, we were scared of the EEOC, and uh, we we trained new management people that uh, the majority of cases filed by the EEOC would result in success for EEOC's client. And that's all changed. Uh, they've taken the teeth out of the EEOC with various laws. And uh, right now, the success rate for EEOC closed workplace discrimination cases is only 17.4%, uh, you know, finding for the client and discrimination. And that can be age, sex, or racial discrimination. Um, as far as, let's see, another uh, statistic, is that 63% of employees who filed discrimination complaints, including harassment, later lost their jobs. So, you know, not very successful in winning these cases in district court, but the majority of employees that file them these days lose their jobs. So, you know, it's great that these doctors won an EEOC complaint, but they're in the minority. I remember you. I remember years ago when I was in the postal service, the federal government had a law that you had to retire at 70. And it was on, it stayed that way for a while. And I 
don't remember what year they changed it, but that was all federal employees other than the Congress people had to um, retire at 70. Yeah, well, I, I think age discrimination uh, became popular more recently. Uh, and that's the law right now. You can't discriminate can't against discriminate. somebody because of age. Yeah. But uh, there are a number of cases, as you mentioned, places where they, I think, policy, uh, there are a number of professions where people uh, kind of force you to retire. It's interesting to see what impact this will have on anybody else. They passed in 1967. Mm. Uh, this is a rare case that uh, uh, double uterus. You know, we talked about the fact that uterine transplants were now being done and there have been uh, at least some 30 births from uterine transplants. But this is somebody was born with two uteri, which is uh, strange. And she gave birth, and then this is, for not, I don't think this has happened before. Uh, strange. Mm. Yeah. So they aren't considered twins then, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, strange. <laughs> Identical twins. Well, it didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would think, I would think fraternal, if anything. Yeah. Yeah, it would have to be. <laughs> have to be fraternal, right? Yeah. Separate birthdays. <laughs> they had rare separate birthdays. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, my brother from wow. That's <laughs> a, that's amazing. They have two uterus and they have uh, pregnant both of them. Wow, that's weird. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Amazing. You can conceive it, it happens. I was just wondering if they knew prior that she had two wombs. How would they know? Oh, they could know. It's easy to know now. Nowadays, they, they do all kinds of ultrasonic tests and genetic tests so that you know the sex of it long before the child was born. Well, the other thing, I mean, this article brings up thousands of questions. What about um, the ovaries and so forth and which direction the sperm goes and all that kind of stuff? Well, there's no no mystery. You know, she has two uteruses. So the, so uh, the sperm goes into each uterus separately. And two uh, sets of ovaries. Well, no, there are two sets of uterus. It didn't say two sets of ovaries. And so I mean, you have two ovaries anyway. How many menstrual cycles and all that kind of stuff? Well, the, the, well you would have to have a menstrual cycle for each uterus. <laughs> right. And then... And then, poor uh, thing, poor thing. Well, you just you you just have two menopauses that you have you have it at this. Oh, you mean menopause? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> now that's another story. I guess they haven't 
We haven't gotten that. That's the next, the next episode. <laughs> that poor, poor woman. Poor woman. <laughs> I got to say. Yeah, having one uterus is enough, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and double hot flashes. Yeah. Well, thank you all for joining us today, and uh, we've had a good discussion.